Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, if you turn to verses 11 through 16, they say, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Man, so good to be in church with each of you today. It's always good to come together, and it's always good to read the Word. And today we're going to make a focus, a very unique focus, as we continue in this series on the church and all of her beauty. And last week we kind of established uh, what the church is. And uh, what is the church? It's the people who are called by God. We have been called out of the self-centeredness life that we have, the self-existence and the sinful patterns. We've been called into God's grace, God's love. We've been called into God's family. You didn't just get saved from your personal sin. You were saved into the body of Christ. You were saved into the church. In fact, there's two aspects to the church that we belong to. One is the universal church, the church around the globe. You belong to that church. Those are your brothers and sisters. If you were to travel to Europe and, and meet a Christian, that is your brother. That is your sister. The two of you together can worship God. You're family worshiping God together. The other aspect is how you and I, in the local setting, we have a more intimate relational experience together because we are here today. We're able to worship God. We're able to join a small group and begin to support one another in ways that maybe otherwise we wouldn't. So there's many benefits to the church. I, I want us to, to actually practice one of the benefits right now. I received word last night by text that one of our missionaries that was with us that in one of the regions that he ministers came under great persecution. And Christians are being saved in that region. The morale of the believers is really high. And yet at the same time, uh, authorities are now questioning them. They don't like the fact that people are being changed by God. They don't want people to become Christians. So they're interviewing, interrogating all the Christians all the new believers, they, they want to know what's going on. They're looking for a way to trap them and persecute them. And so they were asking last night if we, a church that supports them, a local church, and I'm sure they sent that email to a lot of local churches requiring prayer. So let's do that right now. Father, we join with other believers, other family members, and other fellowships, other flocks, 
around the globe that are lifting up this region, lifting up the believers that are standing on the truth of the gospel and people are being saved and now they're coming under persecution. And Lord, we ultimately don't know what your will is. It might be that the persecution is ordered up by you and something greater will come out of it. But we are praying for the protection of those Christians in that region. We're praying that you would give them wisdom and discernment and understanding as they speak to the authorities. We pray, Lord, that as they speak with a spirit of love and they speak truthfully, that somehow the Holy Spirit would begin to convict the authorities of their sin, righteousness, and judgment. That even some of the authorities would come to Christ because of this experience. It wouldn't be the first time that that's happened. And we just pray, God, that somehow you would uh, just give us mindfully daily prayer for these in this region, that we would just pray daily. We don't, we can't, we're not allowed to share where, we're not allowed to share which missionary or anything like that because it could come back on them. But God, you know exactly who we are praying for and you know what region we're praying about. And so God, we're asking you to remind us daily to lift up missionaries around the globe, Christians around the globe who are standing when there's a price to pay. And we pray that, God, we would also be willing to stand if that price were leveled against us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's the benefit of the church. You say, well, I'm saved. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. But you're not connected to any church. You wouldn't have participated in that prayer. Because you've isolated yourself from the family that God created for you to belong to. Very important that we belong in the local church, that we see ourselves as family members of the greater church, much bigger, much larger than us, right? So we read this passage, and we see that the church is made up of very different types of people. Just look around at the different kind of people. Go ahead, look around. They don't look like you. They don't talk like you. They, they don't dress the same uh, some in the room are skinny, some in the room are not skinny. That's a political way of saying it myself. I'm the not skinny, as you well know. And uh, uh, we, 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 we are all unique. We're all different. But we're all one in Christ. Valerie read for us, verse 4, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. What is that? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen? That's the church. So what is God's intended purpose for the church? We looked at this last week. I don't want to go into all the points, but I'll share the first one again because it's so powerful. That is that God created his church on this earth, in this world, as a restraint against the onslaught of sin. It is a people who are committed, the church is a people who are committed to working through their interpersonal issues. We're willing to, to grow so that sin doesn't pervade and take over, invade us. On the inside, the church is growing, the church is becoming more spiritually mature, the church is turning towards Jesus and we're being conformed by the Holy Spirit to the image of Jesus. That's happening. That's a restraint against sin. On the outside, the church is standing on the corner of an abortion clinic, quietly, lovingly standing and praying in hopes that somehow that loving stand would turn a woman away from consideration of an abortion of a child. The church in the world is standing, proclaiming the gospel, where great persecution is breaking out all around them. Many are losing their lives in this day because they took a stand, because they allowed God to use them as a restraint. When you and I stand on the corner of 82nd Avenue and State Road 60, and we hold signs, and we talk about the value of the unborn child, we have people drive by, many honking horns, agreeing, some honking horns long because they disagree, some people rolling the window down and yelling out and maybe showing us a particular finger. 
We're a restraint against sin. This is the purpose of God's church. It's a very important purpose. So, verse 13 in our text, it says, we should be committed to God's church so that we can all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We want to smell like Jesus, look like Jesus. We talk the way Jesus talks in this world. And that all is the work of the Holy Spirit who's conforming us, right? So that we may no longer, and here's the result of being part of the local church. One of the results, and it's the focus of our teaching today, spiritual growth. One of the results of belonging to the local church and getting involved in a small group where teaching will be given or facilitated is that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That is all that the world can offer you. You used to belong to that. But God saved you. He called you. He saved you. He made you part of his church. He clothed you in the righteousness of Christ so that you don't have to live that way any longer. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. Some of you say, well, I've really grown well over here. I can see the growth in my life. And over here, you've not even begun. Well, the Bible's calling you to grow in every way. In every way. Into him who is the head, of, head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body, the body of Christ, grow so that it builds itself up in love. It is by the fact that we're a local church, a local family, and that we will have interpersonal issues with each other, that we work through that, those as a family by the word of God, and we grow closer in unity than ever before. It only strengthens the church. It doesn't cause the church to split up. It doesn't, we don't allow it to cause the church to become a faction and some people just pick up and go. No, we are committed to living Scripture in this place and practicing Scripture, even though at times it's really hard. At times we're really ticked off about somebody or something, but we stay and we work through it as a family. Nobody abandons their family. And if you do, that is so unhealthy. That is so wrong. No, we stay. We work through. Here's a question. Are you truly belonging to the local church? Or do you have one foot in and one foot out? You connect with the church on Sunday or in a, some event, but but you're not really engaging in getting to know, in growing with, in working through the issues with this body of believers. God wants us to be so connected that we, he can see the unity of our faith, not just my faith. Well, I'm doing, I don't know about you, but I'm doing well in the Lord. I'm really growing. No, God's not interested in that attitude. That's individualistic. You were not saved to be an individual. You were saved to belong to his family, to grow with them. It doesn't mean that you're better than anybody, and where you are stronger in one area of your spiritual life, you're weaker than others in the body in another area. There could be a new believer that's, I mean, they're just a neophyte. They've been in the Lord for a short time, and they're way ahead of you in witnessing. See, we can learn from each other, from each one. We all bring something to the table that's important. And probably one of the keys to our spiritual growth, we have to just go ahead and say it, is the Holy Spirit. Because he's going to convict us when we're wrong. He's going to point us back to the word of God and say, here's why you're wrong. And then he's going to allow us, remind us the importance of doing what Brenton mentioned, confessing our sin. Because if we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive. But it's not just the Holy Spirit that's working. It's the word of God that is working. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God to grow us as a body into maturity. 
It is, it, the Bible says, John, Jesus said in John uh, 16, I believe it is, he said, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. There's no way of knowing this without the Holy Spirit helping you. The only way that the Holy Spirit can help you is if you've been called by God into salvation. Because then the Holy Spirit comes into you, and now he is able to work with you and grow you through the Word of God. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. But today, because we're talking about spiritual growth, and we know that it's by the Spirit that we grow, and it's by this body, that's the, this is the workshop. If you're going to build a beautiful piece of furniture, you start with a raw piece of wood. That's you. Me, I'm a finished piece of wood. No, we're all raw. But we have to be put on the table. We've got to have the, the drill press. We've got to have the joiner, the planer, whatever uh, tool that's in, in, that, in that workshop work us until finally we're able to be fitted together beautifully. And by that fitting together beautifully and remaining in that, it brings glory to the Father because that's what he intended for his church. Are you willing to go into the workshop? Are you willing to be used? Are you willing to allow others who are more raw in an area than you, are you willing to love them and be patient with them? Are you willing to come alongside those in this body who are really deeply wounded and hurting? I, I love when I see a, a, a master craftsman, a wood craftsman, when they'll take a piece of wood that's been uh, maybe it's got an issue. It's, it has a gouge in it. And they don't throw the piece of wood on the scrap heap, but they find a way to utilize and actually accentuate what they're creating with that particular flaw. And they bring it out, and it becomes even more precious because of the flaw and how they've worked it. That's us. That's God and his infant understanding of who you are and his identity in you and he's constantly polishing and working with us well i want to talk i want to shift gears and i want to make this the rest of our time about the word of god if the bible is critically important for our spiritual growth which i believe it is how many of you would agree and by the way that's really one of the blessings to the church is the word of god if that's true then we need to make sure we actually can believe the Bible. It doesn't make sense for you to sit here today and hear about how the Bible is uh, going to be our rule of faith and that this is how the Holy Spirit convicts us is by the truth of God's Word, and yet you're sitting there going, well, the Bible, mm. yeah, there's pieces of it that I think are pretty good stuff, but there's other parts of it, ugh, I want no part of it. Well, I want to talk to you this morning. I want to talk to you about how the Christian faith is built upon the confidence that the Bible is God's revealed and inspired word. Here, here let me say a few things to you about the Bible. You got a piece of paper, you got a something and a pen, whatever, and can you write this down? First and foremost, first and foremost, the Bible is infallible. And I'll explain what that means. It does not lead to error. It's infallible. It does not lead to wrong conclusions. When man places his opinion on the truth, that can lead to a wrong conclusion. But if you get what God is saying in the text, you get God's opinion, it'll never lead to a wrong conclusion. It does not teach erroneous doctrine. So number one, it's infallible. Number two, it is inerrant. That means in the smallest part of this book, each word in the original manuscript is without error. All the way down to the jot and the tittle. In Matthew 5.18, Jesus said this about the Bible. Jesus said, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. You say, well, that's Jesus is talking about the things that he said. No, 
He just mentioned law. He just mentioned the Old Testament. He quoted the Old Testament a lot. He would not have quoted it unless he truly believed that the Old Testament in its original manuscript was without error. It's also, thirdly, it's authoritative. Oh, it is authoritative. Some of you say, well, it might be authoritative for some, but it's not for me. Oh, believe me, it is. You say, well, I'm not following it, so I'm not listening. And in the end, when Jesus returns, that glorious great day of his return, the Bible says every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means every human being on the face of the earth today that is laughing and scoffing at the Bible, that does not see the Bible as authoritative and will not submit to the Bible, on that day they will submit fully to the Word of God as Jesus comes forth and speaks. It's authoritative. But for the believer, we desire for the Bible to be authoritative. We desire to follow what the Bible says. It's not easy at times to follow it, and we fall short every single day. But we never stop focusing on the Bible. Why? Because it is the greatest rule of faith in your life. It's the gyroscope in your life. In World War II, when they would fly early on, they had gyroscopes before the electronics and the digital instrumentation and all of that. They used a gyroscope. If they were in a dogfight and it was cloudy, they couldn't see the earth's surface, they would be at a certain altitude and they would start the dogfight, but they, they didn't know at times because of all the maneuvering if they were upside down or right side up. They would look at the gyroscope and that's how they would know. It would correct them. Here's your gyroscope. Because the Lord knows that you and I at times get upside down in some things. I'm thinking of a pastor right now who is a strong Bible teacher, a tremendous Bible teacher. He has a tremendous uh, a following of people who listen to his teachings from the Word of God. And recently he came out and said something that is upside down. And I'm believing that the Holy Spirit, by the word of God, is going to bring him to conviction to understand what he said that was wrong. And he will ask forgiveness for what he said. That's what this book does. It corrects us. Amen? That's a good thing. It's also eternal, meaning if God wrote it, then it carries his nature. It is his eternal word. Okay? You can trust the Word of God. You, if you trust God, you've got to trust His Word. You can't have God without the Word. Number five, it's immutable. Just like God is immutable, the Word of God is immutable. It never changes. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away. Jesus said, but my words will not pass away. In other words, um, customs, cultures nuances come and go you remember the clothes you wore in the 70s some of you remember the bell bottoms remember the polyester shirt remember the leisure suit you wouldn't be caught dead in a leisure suit today my luck somebody here is today wearing a leisure suit <laughs> things change Back, in, back then, you thought it was so cool, you went out and bought one. You wouldn't buy one now, and you wouldn't even find them at a, at a garage sale. Nobody kept them. Yuck. Well, guess what? The styles today, the way people think today, the way the direction this world's going, believe me, it's not going to stay this way. The Bible doesn't try to play catch-up with all the cultural changes and the nuances of life. The Bible is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it, those who believe in God and believe in his word, we stay faithful to the word knowing that it will be the only thing in the end that's standing. 
And so it's important. It's also trustworthy. In other words, the Bible is believable. I, I really enjoyed so much the last two weeks working on this. I turned to some wonderful godly apologists, guys that I believe really have done the homework and know their stuff, guys like Warren Wiersbe, guys like uh, uh, John Piper, a um, uh, couple others. One was a, a guy you wouldn't know, but he's a great uh, scholar, a theologian. Um, just turning to different ones, and at, Chuck Swindoll, uh, there's a wonderful book that's written by, oh, what's his last name? It's, it's like a textbook. It's that thick, and it's all about uh, the Bible. It's about knowing God and knowing the Word. I forget his name. Slip me. But, but I, just reading and re, reinvigorating me, you know, as I prepared for this message. So I want to share some things with you today. If you've got that pen, keep it handy, okay? Uh, first of all, I want you to know that the Bible is believable. It's believable. And, and the Bible's believable because Jesus himself believed the Bible. He believed the doctrine of what is called plenary verbal inspiration. Plenary simply meaning complete, whole, total. In other words, Jesus believed that in total, in every word, this is the inspired word of God in the original manuscript. If Jesus believed that the Bible was the inspired word of God, then he has placed his integrity on it. And here's what I mean by that. Either we have a divine Savior and an infallible Bible, or we don't have either one. You can't have a divine Savior and a fallible Bible because Jesus said it's infallible. So if you're going to have a fallible Bible, throw Christ out with it. But the truth is, Jesus said it's infallible, and he is the Son of God, and I believe both. How about you? Today we have so-called Christian skeptics who constantly try to discredit the integrity of the Word of God. Their, their, their focus is to try and bring doubt. If they can somehow just place doubt in the hearts of Christians. So in churches, Sunday school classes, small groups, this happens a lot. You'll read a passage of Scripture, and then the leader will say to the group, so what does this mean to you? And I'm thinking, what does it matter what it means to me? I have an opinion, but I could be wrong. And the whole group could share opinions, and maybe one person gets it right. It doesn't matter what I think. What does God say in this text? So the right question is, how are you going to respond to what God is saying? You see the difference? One leader might throw out a conclusion that's false and then go, or somebody says, well, the Bible says, and they go, well, do you really think that's what he meant? And all they're trying to do is raise doubt. They don't give a sure, absolute answer they simply raise questions. No, the Bible's infallible. Jesus said that. I believe that. God's church is taught in Scripture to believe that all of this Bible is reliable. Let me give you some supporting evidence for the reliability of the Bible, okay? Number one, the Bible is preeminent among all literature. It's preeminent. You stack all the books of all time against the Bible, and you're going to find that second place isn't even close. It's preeminent in circulation. No other book on the earth has traveled the earth as much as the Bible. It's read by more people in more languages than any other book in human history. 20, listen to this, 20 million Bibles are sold each year. 100 million Bibles are published each year or printed each year. 20 million are sold. How many is 20 million in this world? That means that a Bible is sold every 6.4 seconds on the earth. Take all the writings of the Middle East. Take all the writings of the East. None of them is even in the same galaxy as the Bible. 
Professor Monier Williams. He is a former Baden professor of Sanskrit. He spent 42 years studying Eastern transcripts and manuscripts of all various types. He said this, quote, pile them, if you will, on the left side of your study table. Pile all these books. But place your holy Bible on the right side, all by itself, all alone, and with a wide gap between them. For there is a gulf between it and the so-called sacred books of the East, which severs the one from the other utterly, hopelessly, and forever. He said, after 42 years of studying Eastern sacred books, they don't belong in the same place with the Bible. Errors about the material world are common in all ancient writings. Whether you're talking about Greek or Roman mythology, whether you're talking about traditions of Buddhists and Muslims, and I've traveled around the globe, I've been on the other side of the earth, and I've watched how the Buddhists worship, and I've watched how the Hindus worship, and I've watched how the Muslims worship. And I'm going to tell you right now, they all have their ways, but if you look at the books of which they, they are loyal to, those books are filled with error about history filled with error about natural laws. The Bible? No, it's not. The greatest geniuses, genius, geniuses of ancient philosophy, Aristotle, Plato, Pliny, Lucretius, others, they all wrote these things in their materials. And these are wise men, things that are absurd. And yet, the intellectuals, the elite of this world will believe them wholeheartedly. Oh, they just, they, they love Plato. They love Homer. Homer? Really? If you look at Homer's Iliad, it's the second book to the Bible in terms of original manuscripts that exist. You know how many manuscripts there are of Homer's Iliad? 714. Do you know how many manuscripts there are of the Old Testament? written thousands of years before Homer's Iliad, 14,000. You know how many of the New Testament, bits of scripture and manuscript? 24,000. Next to them, Homer's Iliad, 700. Have you ever met a professor who denies the credibility and veracity of Homer's Iliad? They ascribe to him full He's the author. He's the one. They don't question it. If you ask them if God wrote the Bible, inspired that those who wrote were inspired by the Spirit, they scoff, they laugh, they ridicule, they mock. And yet you have all these, doc all these documents. James Orr said, It is the simple fact that there is nothing that can be properly called history in these sacred books of the world. They are, as every student of them knows, for the most part, jumbles of heterogeneous genius material loosely placed together without order, continue, uh, continuity or unity of any kind. They have none of that. So the Bible is preeminent. Also, the Bible is unique. It's the only book that gives the account of special creation. It's the only book that gives a continuous historical record from the first man to the present era to the future. No other book covers everything. It's the only book of ancient history that gives history a purpose. It's by far the purest religious literature with the highest moral standards. It is the only book of antiquity containing detailed prophecies of events that have been prophesied accurately. The events happened and future events to come. Most of all, it is the only book which has proven to convict men of sin and lead them to the truth about salvation in Jesus Christ. There is no other book in the world like the Bible. Zero. Many people have written books about God, but God wrote only one book. And God's book is his self-disclosure. You cannot know God through reading other books. You know God by the Bible, because he's the one that authored it through those who wrote. 
Most of all, I want you to know, if the Bible is so unique, why do so many people hate it? And they do hate it. You want to know why? No other book has been burned. No other book has been banned. No other book has been outlawed as much as the Bible. From Roman emperors to the communist leaders down through the ages to college professors today, no other book comes close to the attack that the Bible has to endure. It is the most hated book among the elite and the intellectuals of the world. I saw a, a interview on TV, I think it was CNN, I could be wrong, it might have been MSNBC, one or the other, and they were interviewing Vadi Bachman, or Bachman, and he was making a statement about the fact that God has ordered that the church, that the spiritual headship of the church should be, should be men, not women. And if you saw the person who was interviewing him, she started laughing. She had another person uh, uh, that was somewhere else that was on camera. She goes, did you hear that? And the other woman started making all kinds of fun of body. He held to his guns. He did not get angry. He did not raise his voice. He said, well, the fact that you don't agree doesn't change the truth. He was not trying to be belligerent. He was not trying to put down women in one way or the other. He was simply stating that spiritual headship has been given by God to men. Men are called to lead in two places, in the church and in the home. But they're to do it humbly. They're to do it with a spirit of brokenness that they know that apart from Christ, they could do nothing that's helpful to the church or their home. So why do people hate the Bible so much? It's because it's the only book that calls people into true accountability. You have a creator, and you have to answer to him. And the world doesn't want to answer to the creator. So they act as if there is no creator. And they mock the book that he wrote. Yet the Bible has stood the test of time and all the criticism, all the laughing, all the scoffing. And it will always stand because it's God's book. He wrote it. He's the one that put it together. There is a mountain of proof, archaeologically speaking, of the existence that the Bible is true. All it takes is a little time, and they uncover something else that before that day, they didn't believe the Bible was accurate with. In fact, they found whole cities that the Bible spoke of, and they go, that, there's no city that's ever, we've looked through all the antiquities, there is, that city never existed. The Bible says it existed. They can't prove it until somebody uncovers remnants of that city that literally have the name on it. That happens all the time. See, science, all it can do is play catch-up to the Bible. Always trying to catch up to the truth of the, of the word. Warren Wearsby wrote this. He said, one man wrote in Syria, another man wrote in Arabia, another in Italy, and another in Greece. They wrote in the desert of Sinai, the wilderness of Judea, the cave of Adullam, the prison at Rome, the barren island of Patmos, the, plate, uh, the palaces of Zion and Shushan, and the rivers of Babylon. The Bible was written in three languages under different cultures and lifestyles from vastly different people. It contains poetry, history, theology, proverbs, parables, allegory, and on it goes. And every bit of it is one harmonious whole. Only a mastermind could control and write the Bible. Think about that. Forty different authors wrote the Bible. Over a span of 50, 1,500 years. How far back is that? That's from the Middle Ages until now. That's how long it took to complete the Bible. And yet every piece of it supports and fits the others. Awesome. Only God could pull that off. You say, yeah, but, but uh, there's all kinds of errors in the Bible. One that you might hear in the academic community, I'll just quote one, is when they try to trash the Bible, they'll, they'll basically tell the story of Joshua and how he was in battle and the sun was setting 
and he asked God to stop the sun so that he could finish the battle, and God did. And they laugh and say, oh, so the sun rotates now because he's, he's saying God stopped the sun. That's how ridiculous the Bible is. And so I think this was written by uh, Chuck Swindoll. He said, uh, so the guy asked the professor who made that statement, he said, so when you get up tomorrow morning, why do you say it's a beautiful sunrise? You're actually saying the sun moves, the sun rises. You just said it doesn't, and it doesn't. It's just a figure of speech. It's the difference between God writing the Bible from his view or writing it through the view of man. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, what a beautiful earth rotation today. <laughs> we say sunrise, knowing the sun's not moving. But that's how we, from our angle, from our view, that's the way we say it. That's okay. The Bible wasn't written from a scientific perspective. Here's another. Did you know that 2,200 years before Christopher Columbus, God said our planet was circular and not flat? 2,200 years before Christopher Columbus. Isaiah 40, 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. The Bible is unique. But also, the Bible has fulfilled thousands of prophecies. 700 years before Christ shows up on the earth, in Isaiah chapter 7, it absolutely said that the child would come from a virgin and that he would establish an eternal kingdom. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Psalm 72 says that the Messiah would be worshipped by shepherds and kings who would bring gifts to them or to him. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Is that a lucky guess? That an Old Testament prophet said he would be born in Bethlehem? Uh, hardly. 61 prophecies concerning the life of Jesus Christ were given between 500 and 4,000 years before his birth. And every single one of them came true. Scientists tell us that applying the measurement of statistical probability indicates that the chances of just eight of those 61 prophecies being fulfilled is one in 100,000 trillion. Luck? Coincidence? I think not. To go even further, if you lay out the pattern of the Bible, there are four themes, revelation, history, devotion, and prophecy. And, bo and both Old and New Testament follow those four themes. And they are written over 1,500 years, but they, they all fit. In, in the Old Testament, the book of Revelation, or, I'm sorry, the books of Revelation are the Pentateuch. Then comes history, that was Joshua through Esther. Then comes devotion, that's Job through Song of Solomon. Then comes prophecy, that's Isaiah to Malachi. In the New Testament, Revelation is in the Gospels. History, the book of Acts. Devotion, the epistles. Prophecy, the book of Revelation. Same format, 1,500 years. To top it off, the Bible, the Bible has perfect historical continuity and flow with one major theme. The Old Testament, what's the theme? Salvation is concealed. It's there, but it's, you have to look for it. New Testament, salvation is revealed. The Gospels, the salvation is now effectual. In the Acts, salvation is preached. In the Epistles, salvation is explained. And in Revelation, salvation is fulfilled. You think the Bible's about a particular subject? You betcha. Salvation. Let me give you one more. The Bible is indestructible. It's never going to go away. I don't care who comes against it. These people that laugh at the Bible, honestly, if we were not so Christian, we'd laugh at them. Because God wrote it, the Bible carries his nature. What is God's nature? God is eternal. Therefore, his word is eternal. Psalm 119.89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven for all time. Throughout history, Satan has attacked the Bible. Josh McDowell, that's the name I was trying to come up with. He, a lot of uh, some of the facts that I've given you came from his book. Uh, 
He wrote, Celsus tried to destroy the Bible with his brilliant genius and failed. Horfrey tried with the hammer of philosophy and failed. Diocletian, the Roman emperor, gave the most concerted attack ever against the Bible. He tried to destroy Christians and God's word. And in 303 AD, 300 years after Christ, he brought to bear against the Bible all the military and political power of Rome. He issued proclamations that every manuscript of the Bible had to be burned. Naturally, Christians didn't follow his lead. So the imperial government then demanded that the scriptures be given up, and anybody who didn't give them up would be executed. He delivered on his promise. In fact, he burned so many Christians and burned so many manuscripts that he finally erected a column in Rome. It was called Extincto Nominium Christianorium, which, which means the name of Christians has been extinguished. 22 years later... In Rome, where he was emperor, the first church council met at Nicaea and enthroned the Bible as the only infallible judge of truth in the world. That traveled all the way back to Rome. They knew it. So much for Diocletian's Ark of Triumph, huh? The educational and media world has tried to laugh the Bible out of existence. Voltaire, philosopher, writer 50 he said this quote 50 years from now the world will hear no more of the bible he actually wrote a treaty he wrote a book and the book was to stamp out the bible stamp out christianity 50 years later he said 50 years from now no no nobody will ever even speak of bible because it's been gone well 50 years later the british museum paid the russian government a half a million dollars for one copy of one Greek manuscript of Scripture, the Sinaiticus. And in that same year, a first edition of Voltaire's book sold 50 years later, sold in a Paris bookstore for less than eight cents. Who's the fool? 200 years ago, Thomas Paine, one of the geniuses of his era, presented the Age of Reason. It was an attack on Christianity. He felt his arguments would destroy forever the Bible. He predicted that in a few years, the Bible would be out of print. He said this, quote, listen to this, talk about just arrogance, Thomas Paine. When I get through, there will not be five Bibles left in America. Well... 1,500 years after Herodotus wrote his history, there was only one copy. 1,200 years after Plato wrote his books, there was only one copy. Today, million Bibles are sold. I don't think Thomas Paine's prediction came true. What do you think? And remember Voltaire, who said 50 years from now, the world will hear no more of the Bible. The world. Well... 48 years later, after his death, the Geneva Bible Society actually began to use Voltaire's home to store Bibles and tracts for distribution. True story. The president of the Geneva Bible Society, his family and their wealth uh, he used to actually pay for the publishing of Voltaire's books. He was an atheist, and he came to Jesus Christ. And so the family, his family, started the Geneva Bible Society. And they had ownership of Voltaire's home because a lot of Voltaire's things they had. And they used it for the distribution of God's word. Praise God. Heaven and earth will pass away. The word of God will stand forever. I'm telling you right now, today, on this earth, in North America, we have media, we have elites, we have celebrity who serve as pallbearers. Their goal, to bury the Bible. Um, believe me when I say this, the Bible will outlive its pallbearers. It always has, it always will. I want us to just consider the fact that here we are as a fellowship and we want to be committed to the
the study of the Word of God. We, we need to believe the Bible for what it says. Do not be wishy-washy. If you're going to be wishy-washy on the Bible, then that means you really don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. Because he was not wishy-washy with the Bible. He said it's true. Deal with that. And lock in. Belong to the fellowship of God. You can only do that through salvation. But if you're saved, don't be a consumer Christian like so many have become today. Traveling around, changing churches, visiting here, there, whatever. Lock in. We've got small groups that you can sign up for. You can talk with Jerry about his Sunday school class. They had 23 a week ago. I don't know how many they had today, but that's a great beginning point for them here at 8.30 in the morning. Show up, go, come back at 9.30 for fellowship and worship God at 10. So many ways for us to grow. And the church is the primary way in which God delivers spiritual maturity to his people. Father, thank you so much for your love that you would give us the church. First, you would save us by the Holy Spirit. We don't even do the saving. It's the work of the Spirit. He's the one who transforms us. He regenerates us. And we're thankful that that work is complete when we simply, by grace through faith, receive. We, we accept the call of God. We line up with the call of God. We surrender. We repent of our sins. We come clean. And we belong. Salvation is not just forgiveness of sin. Salvation is belonging to God's church. Help us, Father, today by the Holy Spirit to find our place in the fellowship, to commit to be part of the fellowship of God, to study the Word of God, to believe it with our whole heart, to walk by it. That is the only thing that will help us in this day and age that we live. And we're thankful that, God, you've given us a witness to the world. You want us to stand and, and as, 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 as light, as salt in this world. And we know that it's the word in us that does the saving. It's not us. So we're thankful by the Holy Spirit that the gospel can go forth and we get to participate in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, always, we have those who will pray. They'll be standing up front. If you'd like prayer about any matter in your life, any issue you're going through, come forward. If today somehow God's gripped your heart and now all of a sudden you're sensing his calling for salvation, come and tell them. They'll, they'll talk to you about it. They'll explain it. You can be saved, okay? God bless each of you. Thank you for being here today.